Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. Um, sorry for the little hiatus that I took there. I wasn't really intending to do that, but uh, yeah, I uh, ended up going out of town for multiple weekends in a row, and then one week I was just gone on vacation. Had a lovely time on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, the UP, and on Isle Royal National Park. Great trip, loved it, and I was just without internet for most of that trip. They don't really know what cell service is like <laughs> in the middle of Lake Superior, uh, but uh, no, it was a great trip. Nice to actually kind of unplug for a little while and refresh, but I'm back today with another episode of Excuse Me History. This is the fifth in the series on the Gettysburg campaign, and I won't, uh, won't spend too much time on this introduction, but I will say, again, if uh, on this episode we'll be discussing a few different battles, uh, little minor battles, before we get to Gettysburg. If you're interested in following along in the action with some visual aids, I'll be posting some stuff on the Excuse Me History Facebook page, so if you have not liked that, go ahead and do that. Um, but again, if uh, I think I mentioned this on the last episode, Wikipedia has some good resources, and the American Battlefield Trust, uh, www.battlefields.org, they have some good resources, uh, battle maps, uh, and just some other descriptions uh, if you want to go into a little further detail yourself. And I don't know if there's anybody listening to this who is not subscribed to the podcast, but if you have not subscribed, go ahead and do so, or follow, or on whatever app that you use. According to the statistics that I get from the hosting service I use, most people listen to this on Apple Podcasts, so uh, if you are on Apple Podcasts and you haven't rated the show, give a, give a little five-star rating. Nothing under five stars. If you don't like this podcast, stop listening to it. What are you doing? Uh, life's too short. But if you have nice things to say, uh, please, of course, give a, give a five-star rating on, on Apple Podcasts. And if you hear something on the podcast that's confusing, you have any questions, comments, concerns, you know, you hear something that you think is wrong and you want to let me know, send emails to excusemehistory at gmail.com. All right, folks, without any further ado, let's start the show. So on the last episode, we finally got into the real beginning of the Gettysburg Campaign. After weeks of planning from the Confederate High Command, General Robert E. Lee launched his operation. The first major battle occurred on June 9th between the entire Union Cavalry Corps and the Confederate Cavalry Division at Brandy Station. The troopers led by the Cavalier Rebel General Jeb Stuart held out for 12 hours against waves of attacks from the Yankees. His Union counterpart, the dandy General Alfred Pleasanton, failed to break up Stuart's division as he was instructed by the Army commander, General Joseph Hooker, but his horse soldiers held their own against the previously vaunted Confederate cavalry. The battle, though long and intense, did little to change the overall situation in the campaign. The Confederate artillerist, Colonel Edward Porter Alexander, wrote that the Battle of Brandy Station was, quote, a great humbug. Twelve or fifteen thousand engaged all day, and lost on our side not four hundred. I rode over the field the next day and saw only about twenty dead Yankees, only two killed with a saber." Unquote. Perhaps he was exaggerating a bit, but I can also imagine him being jaded about the whole affair, considering that the Battle of Chancellorsville had been the bloodiest battle of the war up to that point. Brandy Station simply paled in comparison. Because the Federal cavalry failed to break Stuart's screen, the presence of Confederate infantry in the vicinity of Culpeper, Virginia, was still uncertain. Pleasanton believed that the concentration of Stuart's division meant that there must be some rebel foot soldiers nearby, but General Hooker was still far from convinced. 
It was only days after the battle, when General Richard Ewell's entire corps had entered the Shenandoah Valley, that Hooker learned that the majority of the Army of Northern Virginia was no longer in a defensive position along the Rappahannock. But after days of indecision, the alarm bells were finally rung, and Hooker kickstarted the Army of the Potomac into action. One problem that plagued both sides during the war was the lack of a unified command structure. The different regions of the country were divided into different theaters of war. The Eastern Theater was considered the main one, mostly because of the size of the armies and the proximity of the two capitals. The Federals divvied up the Eastern Theater into multiple departments that largely acted independent of each other, but they all reported to the General-in-Chief of all Union armies, Major General Henry Halleck. I haven't talked about Halleck much in this series so far, but he's worth delving into for a moment. Henry Wager Halleck was born in 1815 in upstate New York. Eventually, he was admitted to the U.S. Military Academy, where he was noted as being a particularly brilliant student. He was something of a protege to Dennis Hart Mahan, the West Point professor that I discussed in Part 1 of this series. Mahan even allowed Halleck to instruct classes while he was still a young cadet. Ultimately, he finished third in the class of 1839 and was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Engineers. His pre-war army career was rather unique. He wrote a book called Elements of Military Art and Science, which furthered his reputation as a scholar of military theory. It was an exhaustively researched work that expounded on the writings of Baron Jomini, the Swiss-born general and chronicler of Napoleon's military campaigns. Halleck's book also went into great detail about the importance of defensive field fortifications, something that certainly made his old professor Dennis Hart Mahan proud. He did serve in the Mexican War, but unlike most of the officers I've discussed, he was never part of either Winfield Scott or Zachary Taylor's armies. Instead, he served on the staffs of several officers in California. While on a ship bound for the Pacific coast, he translated one of Baron Jomini's writings from French to English, which was later published during the Civil War. His reputation as an academic and an authority of military history led his contemporaries to nickname him Old Brains, but particularly during his Civil War years, this was not necessarily meant as a compliment. After the war, he notably served as the Military Secretary of State in the California Territory, and was heavily involved in the creation of the State of California. He served as the Territorial Governor's representative at the State Constitutional Convention in 1849, and was one of the primary authors of that foundational document. He eventually left the army and settled in California, where he started a successful law firm and was also appointed Major General in the California State Militia. Perhaps no other American army officer of the Civil War era knew as much about the campaigns of Napoleon as Henry Halleck, but he was certainly no great battlefield leader like Le Petit Caporal. That's not to say he wasn't a good officer, in fact he was actually quite brilliant in many facets of military leadership. He was a top-rate administrator and manager which were qualities that weren't particularly admired in the antebellum years or even during the war itself. You might say that Halleck was just a little bit ahead of his time. He came along at a time when the size of the U.S. military was just too small. No, he wasn't cut out to be a man on horseback leading troops into battle. He was a little too much of a nerd for that. But he was just the man to understand modern military management, logistics, and coordination between various departments and military theaters. He was effectively a chief of staff before the government realized that its military needed one. In the first year of the war, he served as the head of the Department of Missouri, where he excelled. He did have a brilliant subordinate officer in General Ulysses Grant, and Halleck wasn't shy about taking credit for Grant's exploits. He also had a bit of a jealous, vindictive streak. This was particularly apparent when it came to Grant, whose career Halleck nearly managed to derail early in the war. 
After the Battle of Shiloh in April 1862, he threw Grant under the bus for the army's near defeat, and then afterward took control of the Army of Tennessee. But he proved himself to be a mediocre field commander. His biggest weakness was his slow, methodical pace. Every time the army stopped, they spent an inordinate amount of time building temporary field fortifications, which allowed time for the rebels to escape. This turned out to be his only experience leading troops during the war. He went to Washington in the spring of 1862 to replace General George McClellan as the General-in-Chief of all Union armies. The General-in-Chief was essentially the highest-ranking officer and answered only to the Secretary of War and President. Halleck was a top-notch strategist, but he failed to properly utilize his authority. He rarely issued orders to the various department or army commanders. Instead, he merely offered suggestions when he thought necessary, which I think he did for a couple of reasons. One, he did not have a forceful enough personality to command others to do things unless it was absolutely necessary. And secondly, and I think the more likely reason, was that it gave him a level of plausible deniability. If something he suggested went well, then he could take credit for the idea. If something went poorly, he could distance himself by saying he never issued a direct order. And look, I'm not saying that he didn't perform valuable work, but Halleck just didn't seem to have the skills required to coordinate multiple armies in an effective way. Again, he essentially filled the role of chief of staff, but that was not the job he was brought in for. Now back to what I was saying earlier. Within the Eastern Theater, there were several different districts or departments that all answered to Halleck. The two departments that concern us in our story at this moment were the Department of Washington, under the command of Major General Samuel Heinzelman, which was responsible for the defenses of the capital. The other was the Middle Department, led by Major General Robert Shank. Shank was a pre-war lawyer and politician. He was an Ohio State representative and the U.S. Minister to Brazil in the early 1850s. He was also a notable early supporter of Abraham Lincoln and advocated for his nomination for the Republican Party's presidential ticket in 1860. After the election, Lincoln ultimately rewarded him with a general's commission in 1861. In December of 1862, General Shank was named commander of the 8th Corps of the Union Army and effectively given control of the Middle Department. Its main objective was to protect the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which you might recognize as the B&O Railroad if you've ever been forced by your family to play a game of Monopoly. The B&O connected Baltimore to the Ohio River at Parkersburg in modern-day West Virginia. Shank's headquarters was located in Baltimore, but his corps was spread out all around the area to the south of the railroad, mostly in Maryland and what is now West Virginia. West Virginia. One division was commanded by General Benjamin Franklin Kelly, which was headquartered at Harper's Ferry, an important depot along the B&O. If you'll recall the John Brown episode, Rob and I talked about the train that Brown's men held up during the raid. Well, that was on the Baltimore and Ohio track. Kelly had a small force at Harper's Ferry, but most of his infantry was spread out through the lower part of the Shenandoah Valley. Shank's other division was largely concentrated around Winchester, Virginia. Today, Winchester is located in the northernmost county in Virginia. It's actually above Washington, D.C. Because of its location, it was a prime target for either army. The Shenandoah Valley was one of the breadbaskets of the Confederacy, so its occupation was a key strategic objective for both sides. The valley also provided a kind of avenue for the rebels to march through and threaten either Harper's Ferry, Maryland, or the capital. The primary reason that Lee wanted to use the Shenandoah Valley as a route for their operation was because the Blue Ridge Mountains on the eastern side of the valley provided a handy screen for his army. The mountains were only crossable at a few gaps and passes which were pretty easy to defend, while in the valley they could march with a sense of security that they wouldn't be attacked and would be out of sight of the Federals. 
General Shank had been worried for several months that the troops at Winchester were vulnerable to a rapid enemy advance. On January 5, 1863, General Halleck wired a telegram to General Shank and Kelly in which he expressed his misgivings for their current strategy. Quote, No attempt should be made to hold Winchester against a large force of the enemy, but used simply as an outpost, as advised in our conversation a day or two ago. Isolated posts and columns are too liable to be cut off. Unquote. Halleck's prophetic warning was unfortunately not heeded. Commanding the division at Winchester was Major General Robert H. Milroy. Milroy was an Indiana lawyer and judge turned army officer. He wasn't a professional soldier, but he did have some prior military experience, having volunteered to fight in Mexico in 1847, though he never saw combat. In the winter and spring of 1863, Milroy was overly confident in his ability to hold Winchester from the rebels. He responded to requests to withdraw his division by writing, quote, I will guarantee to hold Winchester and the country to Mount Jackson and to guard securely the gaps of Manassas, Ashby, Gregory, and Snicker, and to keep the road from Winchester to Martinsburg and Charlestown open, if I have sufficient force. With such a force, I will ensure Winchester against any force the rebels bring against it, unquote. The city had been fortified with a series of earthworks early in the war by the Confederates, which were improved upon during the Union occupation. The three main fortifications, Fort Milroy, the Star Fort, and the West Fort, were located north and west of town. A series of seven additional batteries connected by trenches were constructed to protect the roads that led into Winchester. Shank was convinced by Milroy that he could hold the town and did nothing to remove the division, which went seemingly unnoticed for several months. Perhaps Halleck had more important things on his plate, but he finally sent another telegram to Shank on April 30th, reminding him that Winchester was, quote, no place to fight a battle. It is merely an outpost, which should not be exposed to an attack in force, unquote. Once again, Shank ignored the general-in-chief. Halleck finally sent a direct order to him on May 8th that instructed him to withdraw the majority of Milroy's division from Winchester. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Shank thought he was just suggesting that Milroy withdraw and did nothing to comply with the order. I was re-watching the movie Jaws the other day, and the situation I'm describing reminds me of scenes in that movie when an unsuspecting swimmer is just bobbing in the water and a shark is coming for them. You just want to shout, GET OUT! GET OUT OF THE WATER! That shark had crossed the Blue Ridge on June 12th and was closing in on Milroy's division. If you recall at the end of the last episode, Yule split his corps into two wings. The smaller wing was led by General Robert Rhodes and it included his division and General Albert Jenkins' brigade of cavalry. Rhodes was ordered to head north from Front Royal to Berryville. Berryville was occupied by a brigade of Union infantry under the command of Colonel Andrew McReynolds, and it was a pivotal position because if Milroy was forced to evacuate Winchester, he'd most likely move his division east through Berryville and then onto Harper's Ferry. After Rhodes captured the garrison at Berryville, they continued north toward Martinsburg, Milroy's only other alternate route of escape. The larger wing was led by General Ewell himself, and it included the divisions of Generals Jubal Early and Edward Allegheny Johnson. They would march directly on Winchester to attack Milroy's division. This campaign was a real test for Ewell, who had been out of action since the previous August. Because he was now missing a leg, he was forced to ride in a carriage when traveling long distances, though he could still ride a horse well when he needed to. When on on horseback or in a carriage, he needed the help of crutches to stand upright. Many must have wondered if he was physically up to the task. 
The Confederate vanguard of cavalry ran into Federal pickets at Middletown, Virginia, about 12 miles south of Winchester. Milroy was alerted to this, but he still refused to believe that he was about to face a serious threat. The Confederate 2nd Corps briefly rested on the night of June 12th, before striking out for their objectives at 3 a.m. on the 13th. Rebel skirmishers ran into Yankee pickets about four miles south of Winchester. Johnson's division brushed aside whatever light resistance it encountered on the Front Royal Turnpike that led to the eastern side of Winchester, while Early's troops moved along the Valley Turnpike that put his division directly south of town. The 1st Maryland Infantry Battalion had recently been added to Ewell's command as an independent unit. It was at the head of the Confederate column when it encountered Union artillery and cavalry videttes near the small community of Newtown. The Marylanders formed a battle line and easily pushed the Federals back to Pritchard's Hill where they made a defensive stand. General Milroy still had every intention to stay and fight it out at Winchester. The skirmishing that occurred on the evening of June 12th and the morning of June 13th did alert him to the presence of the rebels, so he ordered Brigadier General Washington Elliott to lead three regiments of infantry and two artillery pieces to Pritchard's Hill. When the 1st Maryland Battalion reached the hill, they realized they were outnumbered and outgunned, so they halted their advance. In the meantime, artillery from both sides began to duel from long range. General Early was now on the scene and ordered the brigades of Brigadier Generals Harry Hayes and John Gordon to move northwest and outflank the Federal position on the hill. Occupied by Confederate infantry and artillery in their front, General Elliott was unaware of the flanking move. When Hayes and Gordon's troops were in place, they advanced on Pritchard's Hill and their superiority in numbers forced the Yankees to withdraw to a stronger position, due south of town, on Bowers Hill and Milltown Heights. Early ordered his division forward, but as they got closer to the Union defenses, they were forced back by an intense barrage of artillery fire. Elliott ordered his brigade to perform a counterattack to prevent Early's division from further encroachment. The fierce Union assault, their strong artillery positions on the hill south of town, and the coming darkness caused General Ewell to call it a day and regroup his men. Ewell now worried that the strength of the Federal batteries and the forts that surrounded Winchester would make it more difficult to capture the town than he originally imagined, but on a positive note, he had them right where he wanted. The combination of Milroy's ignorance and arrogance and his orders from Shank to hold Winchester kept him there instead of withdrawing. By the night of June 13th, he was at least aware that he was not just facing a small Confederate cavalry raid, but at least one division of the Army of Northern Virginia. Earlier in the day, when the Rebs and Yanks were fighting south of town, General Jenkins' cavalry brigade and Rhodes' division of infantry captured Berryville after only some light skirmishing with the Federals. Colonel McReynolds had been alerted to the presence of the Confederates when he heard the sounds of guns being fired from Winchester. Jenkins' cavalry moved too slowly, and by the time that it reached Berryville, only a few stragglers remained. Though the Confederates captured the Federals' primary route of escape, they failed to inflict a significant blow on the 1,800 soldiers that had been stationed there. McReynolds led his brigade west to Winchester, where he joined Milroy's command. I've read differing estimates of how many troops Milroy had at his disposal, but by June 13th it was no less than 7,000, and probably no higher than 9,000. Rhodes' column reached Martinsburg around nightfall, but it too had already been evacuated. Failing to capture McReynolds' brigade was disappointing, but as a consolation, Rhodes and Jenkins' men succeeded in capturing some abandoned Federal cannons, and more importantly, they cut the telegraph wires from Winchester to Harper's Ferry, which completely isolated Milroy's division from the rest of the 8th Corps. On the night of June 13th, Milroy and Ewell contemplated their respective options. Milroy still believed that his outnumbered force could hold out against the Confederate attacks for five days. Earlier in the year, he actually boasted that they could defend their position for a month. 
He was unsure exactly how large the enemy force was, but the rebels controlled all the roads entering Winchester from the south, so overnight he decided to pull most of his troops back to the main defensive positions north and west of town, though he ordered the bulk of his division to concentrate on the roads facing south. Yule and his generals also devised a plan on the night and early morning of June 13th and 14th. He decided to forego a direct assault against the main fort. Even with an advantage in numbers, his troops would likely take heavy casualties in an attack against the Union batteries. After reconnoitering the area, General Early suggested to Yule that he take the bulk of his division on a long flanking march to the west. A series of wooded ridges would conceal the movement of his troops and allow him to sneak into a position to attack one of the smaller Federal batteries, the West Fort. Yule approved of the plan. In the morning, the brigade of General Gordon captured Bowers Hill, which the Federals had abandoned in the night. Gordon deployed a battery of artillery and ordered his brigade and the 1st Maryland Battalion to press the Yankee entrenchments. General Johnson similarly used his division to probe the defenses on the southeastern side, but these were merely demonstrations to occupy the attention of the Federals as three brigades of Early's division, along with approximately 20 artillery pieces, marched 10 miles west and then north until they reached Little North Mountain. Once the guns were unlimbered and in position, they opened up a fierce cannonade against the lightly defended West Fort. The rebel gunners caught the Federal defenders completely off guard. The bombardment lasted for nearly an hour. At around 7 p.m., General Early ordered his infantry to attack the fort. Leading the assault was the brigade commanded by General Harry Thompson Hayes. Hayes was born in Tennessee in 1820. As an adult, he settled in New Orleans where he opened a law practice. He served as a lieutenant in a Louisiana Volunteer Cavalry Regiment in the Mexican War. Between that conflict and the Civil War, he was involved in Whig politics and was a supporter of Winfield Scott's presidential campaign, the last Whig to run for president, in 1852. When Louisiana seceded from the Union, Hayes enthusiastically volunteered and was commissioned as a colonel and given command of an infantry regiment. In July 1862, he was promoted to brigadier general and given command of a brigade of infantry that was referred to as the Louisiana Tigers. The nickname Louisiana Tigers was used by many different units of the war. The first to hold the moniker was one company of the 1st Special Battalion Louisiana Volunteer Infantry called the Tiger Rifles. The Tiger Rifles were a Zouave unit. Originally, Zouaves were light infantry units of the French Imperial Army that fought primarily in Algeria in the 1850s. Their distinct uniforms and light infantry tactics were adopted by many units of the American Civil War, particularly in the early days of 1861, though by 1863 their presence was a bit of an anomaly. Instead of the usual gray or butternut jackets and pants worn by most rebel infantrymen, the Tiger Rifles wore dark blue wool zouave jackets with red cotton trim, red fezes with red tassels on their heads, red flannel band collar shirts with five white porcelain buttons, ship pantaloons with blue and cream vertical stripes, blue and white horizontally striped stockings, and white canvas leggings. Their uniforms made them one of the most distinct looking units of the entire war. Eventually, the name Tigers grew from one company to the entire battalion, and by 1863, the entire brigade commanded by Harry Hayes was referred to as the Louisiana Tigers. By the end of the war, Tiger was often synonymous with any unit made up of Louisiana soldiers. The legacy is actually still around. Louisiana State University, better known as LSU, adopted the Tiger name and mascot in 1896, which they still use today. In fact, in the last couple of years, the university has come under some pressure to change the name in the wake of the evolving public attitude toward references to ex-Confederates and slaveholders. But it seems that Tiger is too generic at this point to be renamed. 
Anyway, let's get back to the action. General Hayes wrote after the battle that, quote, the order to charge was given, and so rapidly did this brigade push forward that the enemy had time to give us but a few volleys of musketry and only four or five rounds of canister from their field pieces before the position was reached and carried, unquote. Yule excitedly watched on as the Tigers captured the West Fort, and the Federals fled toward Fort Milroy, the main Union fortification. General Milroy was stunned by the surprise attack. Most of his infantry and artillery were positioned to anticipate an attack from the south. He'd even ordered General Elliott to retake Bowers Hill, but now his division was in a tight spot. He recalled Elliott's brigade and prepared to defend against further Confederate attacks. Rebel gunners pounded the Union defenders with shot and shell from their positions south and west of Fort Milroy. More rebel infantry was sent in to test the defensives of the main fort, but they were met by fierce musket and artillery fire, which forced them to retreat. By this time, it was after 9 p.m. and the sun had set over the battlefield. General Milroy's division was in a precarious situation. When the guns went silent on the night of June 14th, he called a council of war with his subordinate officers to discuss their options. Though they were unsure exactly how many Confederates they faced, it seemed obvious that they were outnumbered. Their defensive positions had become increasingly untenable now that the rebels had captured the West Fort and held all the key positions south of town. Milroy was also informed that they only had enough rations to feed the division for one more day, so if they became encircled, they would have no choice but to surrender. Retreat was the only sensible thing to do now. Around 1 a.m. on June 15th, it was decided that the forces, which had garrisoned Winchester for the last six months, would withdraw from their fortifications to head for the Martinsburg Pike. Coincidentally, General Halleck wired a message earlier that day to Shank that basically read, Order Milroy to withdraw from Winchester, or you're fired. The War Department and White House had been flipping out over the situation in Winchester for a couple of days now. General Hooker was asked if he could do something to save Milroy's division, but he did nothing. President Lincoln wrote to Hooker, quote, If the head of Lee's army is at Martinsburg, and the tail of it on the plank road between Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, the animal must be very slim somewhere. Could you not break him? Unquote. Lincoln had a point. Lee's army was stretched out over 100 miles in mid-June. If Hooker had the confidence and the drive, he might have isolated a Confederate column and defeated it in detail. He replied to the president, quote, I do not feel like making a move for an enemy until I am satisfied as to his whereabouts, unquote. He would later go on to say, quote, To proceed to Winchester and have him make his appearance elsewhere would subject me to ridicule, unquote. I will say a couple of things in defense of Hooker. By this point, it really was too late to do anything about Winchester, and he wasn't receiving accurate information about the movements of the enemy. Pleasanton's cavalry up to this point had yet to gather any significant intelligence, and the Bureau of Military Information struggled to discern the reports of rebel movements with any great degree of confidence. When the Army of Northern Virginia had been stationary during the winter and spring of 1862 and 63, it had been relatively easy to keep track of its position and strength, but now that it was on the move, this became more difficult. Hooker was trying to avoid defeat rather than achieve victory. Kind of an inverse of the whole, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take mentality. You hear that, Wayne Gretzky? Fuck you. Milroy's division slipped out of its entrenchments in the early morning hours of June 15th, and began to head east, but Yule had correctly anticipated this move. General Johnson's division, which had occupied the area southeast of Winchester on June 14th, was ordered to march his division northeast to Stevenson's depot along the Winchester and Potomac Railroad under the cover of darkness. Johnson's troops were posted just south of the Martinsburg Pike, the road on which Milroy's troops were expected to be marching. 
At approximately 3.30 a.m., the retreating federal soldiers were fired upon by rebels in the darkness. What ensued was a bewildered mess of a battle. Fighting during daylight hours was difficult enough, but marching and fighting at night would only multiply the confusion. Milroy attempted to gain control of the situation and ordered three Ohio regiments of Elliott's brigade to attack the Confederate right flank. The Virginians and North Carolinians of Brigadier General George Stewart's brigade held against federal attacks in the embankments of the railroad cut. Milroy sent several regiments of Maryland and Pennsylvania infantry against the rebel left flank, but a brigade of Louisianans led by Colonel Jesse Nichols held firm. Johnson sent the Stonewall Brigade, the unit originally led by General Stonewall Jackson, now led by Brigadier General James Walker, to block the Martinsburg Pike. The Federals actually outnumbered the Confederates, but they had abandoned their artillery in Winchester and could do nothing to silence the rebel guns. After two hours of hard fighting, Milroy's demoralized division broke into a frenzied rout. It was every man for himself at that point. Milroy himself was heard shouting, quote, Men, save yourselves! Every man, fight your way through to Harper's Ferry! Unquote. He directed his horse off the main road and fled as fast as the animal would take him. The rest of his division either surrendered or scattered in multiple directions. The majority of his command, around 4,000 men, was captured by Johnson's soldiers in the early morning hours of July 15th. The rest of the survivors, just under 4,000 in total, managed to escape right before the sun rose. Around 1,200 caught up with Milroy and marched 30 miles to Harper's Ferry. The majority, around 2,700, went north until they crossed the Potomac River at Hancock, Maryland, and eventually stopped in Everett, Pennsylvania, some 75 miles away from Winchester. The Second Battle of Winchester was a disaster for the Federals, and inversely, a great success for the Confederates. There had been failures at almost every level from the top down on the Union side. General Henry Halleck was not forceful enough with General Schenck, who in turn refused sound advice, didn't follow the orders of the General-in-Chief, and was misled by his own subordinate, General Milroy, who held on to an isolated, unimportant post until it was far too late to withdraw cleanly. It was only sheer luck that prevented his division from being completely annihilated on June 15th. On the other hand, General Richard Yule and his division had performed superbly, any doubts that Dick Yule was unfit for command were put aside. He carefully planned and executed a brilliant operation. It's hard to imagine him making better tactical decisions than he did at Winchester. After three days of skirmishing and heavy fighting, the Confederates had lost less than 300 men killed, wounded, or captured. The losses for the Federals were much higher. 4,000 soldiers surrendered to the rebels. In addition, nearly 100 were killed, and between 300 and 400 were wounded. Also, they had abandoned a significant amount of valuable supplies, including 300 wagons, 300 horses, and 28 artillery pieces between Winchester and Martinsburg. On June 15th, the only significant Union force in the Shenandoah Valley, beside the garrison at Harper's Ferry, was shattered, and the road to Maryland and Pennsylvania was now open to the Army of Northern Virginia. The citizens of Winchester, who were largely sympathetic to the rebel cause, cheered in the streets as the 2nd Corps marched through the streets of the town as liberators. Ewell ordered that the main fort north of town was to be renamed Fort Jackson in honor of the martyred Confederate general. His leadership and the performance of the soldiers drew praise from the citizens and other Confederate officers, some of whom compared him to Stonewall. Captain Charles Blackford, one of Jeb Stewart's staff officers, wrote, quote, Ewell won his right to Jackson's mantle at Jackson's game on Jackson's ground. This success will give the Corps more confidence in Ewell, unquote. Following the Second Battle of Winchester, panic and rumors spread all throughout Union territory. 
The crushing defeat was one thing, but Milroy's shattered division trudged into Harper's Ferry saying that the rebels were hot on their heels. There was a great deal of speculation as to where Lee's army was heading. Citizens of Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Harrisburg began to sound alarm bells. President Lincoln called on Pennsylvania and its neighboring states to raise new militia regiments, hopefully tens of thousands of volunteers to meet the new threat. This proved mostly to be an empty gesture, as very few men agreed to serve even in this case of emergency. There were a few problems. The biggest issue was largely logistical. There was just no real apparatus to call up the number of volunteers they were hoping for. Pennsylvania had no state militia system in 1863. Another issue was that there were just not that many men at this point in the war who were willing to take up arms in defense of their state. If you felt a patriotic urge to fight for your country or your state, you were likely already in the army. Additionally, some men who considered volunteering were wary of their terms of service. How long would they be enlisted for? Would they be able to go home once the threat had subsided, or would they be stuck in a militia outfit for the duration of the war? A big fear was that they'd just be integrated into the Army of the Potomac and be forced to leave the state, which almost none were inclined to do. Most would rather just take their chances and stay at home to defend their own property from the Confederate invaders. Ultimately, after much back-and-forth wrangling between Pennsylvania state officials and the War Department, 8,000 militiamen were recruited within the state. 12,000 additional militiamen were sent from New York to bolster their ranks, meaning that the Pennsylvanians were outnumbered by the New Yorkers on their own ground. Ironically, the man that was to lead these new volunteers was the commander of the Department of the Susquehanna, none other than General Darius Couch. Couch was a minor player in Part 2 of this series, when he was still commander of the 2nd Corps of the Army of the Potomac and resigned due to his disdain for General Hooker. He'd only been in Harrisburg a couple of weeks and found that there was relatively little for himself to do compared to his previous post, but his responsibilities rapidly grew in the middle of June 1863. Meanwhile, the Army of Northern Virginia was now in full swing. Back on June 14th, at the same time Ewell was attacking Winchester, Lee ordered General A.P. Hill to have the Third Corps pack up and head for Culpeper Courthouse now that the Army of the Potomac was no longer a direct threat to Richmond. That day, the Third Corps left its defensive positions along the Rappahannock and traced the steps of Ewell's Second Corps to Culpeper. From there, Hill's troops would march toward the Shenandoah Valley, which it would enter through Ashby's Gap and the Blue Ridge Mountains. In front of Hill was James Longstreet's 1st Corps. They were on their way to the Loudoun Valley, which was east of the Blue Ridge. They would cross the mountains further to the north at Snickers Gap. Once in the valley, their role was mostly to defend the mountain passes and act as a screen for the 3rd Corps. Stewart's cavalry was also to act as a screen for the infantry by defending the Loudoun Valley and the Bull Run Mountains to the east. Stewart's objectives were a bit more fluid and would change in the coming weeks. After the fighting around Stevenson's Depot ended on the morning of July 15th, the next week would feature a series of cavalry battles. The Rebel cavalry was spread out even more than the infantry. In the days after Brandy Station, Stewart's division was mostly still concentrated along the Rappahannock between Fredericksburg and Culpeper Courthouse, but Jenkins' brigade was attached to Ewell's column. After Martinsburg was captured, Jenkins was ordered to cross the Potomac with his troopers and move into Northern Territory as quickly as possible. On June 15th, Jenkins' cavalry crossed the river at Williamsport. A band played Dixie while their horses waded through the water. 
Over the next few days, they slowly rode from Hagerstown to Greencastle, Mercersburg, McConnellsburg, and finally Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. General Robert Rhodes was incredibly frustrated by the glacial pace of their march into Pennsylvania. As the vanguard of the Rebel Column, they would clear out any potential threats like the remnants of the 8th Corps, any Union militia, or locals who got up the courage to organize any kind of defense. As they moved north, they would requisition supplies from the locals. Lee wanted his army to pay for everything that it took from northern civilians, and to respect private property. This was done to a degree, but especially in the early days of the invasion, Jenkins' troopers wantonly took or destroyed what it wanted. Frightened citizens did what they could to protect their property. Those who were able to packed up whatever valuables they had, including livestock, and moved it further north, east, and west. Those who stayed took extreme measures to hide anything that might be requisitioned by the rebels. One farmer even went so far as to hide his milk cow in a cellar. The group that feared the oncoming Confederate raid more than anyone else were the few thousand black civilians that lived in the Cumberland Valley. Some of these people were previously enslaved and either escaped before the war or were liberated by federal troops, the so-called contraband of war. But many had lived in the area as farmers and artisans for years. All, whether born free or in bondage, were subject to capture and enslavement by the Confederate raiders. Horrified white citizens intervened a few times, but they mostly watched on in amazement. Rachel Cormany, a resident of Franklin County, wrote that the rebel horsemen, quote, were hunting up the contrabands and driving them off in droves. Oh, how it grated on our hearts to have to sit quietly and watch such brutal deeds. I saw no men among the contrabands, all women and children, unquote. As they rode through the towns of Franklin County, the cavalrymen threatened to, quote, burn down every house which harbored a fugitive slave and did not deliver him up within 20 minutes, unquote. It's unclear exactly how many black people were captured, but at least one estimate puts it at over a thousand if you take into account the folks who were taken hostage at Winchester and the lower Shenandoah Valley after the Federals had evacuated. I always find this to be one of the more egregious incidents of the war. It's something that lost causers, neo-confederates, and other southern apologists just have no real justification for. They tend to ignore it completely. And for those who would have you believe that the state's rights was the core belief of the Confederate States of America, they would have a hard time defending the actions of the Confederates in Maryland and Pennsylvania, who literally violated the rights of human beings by kidnapping them and forcing them into slavery. As the infantry of the Army of Northern Virginia was moving west and north, the bulk of Stuart's cavalry was doing the same. They had to wait until June 16th to leave Brandy Station, as Longstreet's wagon train blocked the roads, but they departed for Salem, Virginia, modern-day Marshall, which was about 35 miles away. He temporarily left behind the brigades of Generals Hampton and Jones to guard their rear. With Stuart were the brigades of the two Lees and General Robertson. However, both the Lee cousins were still out because of physical ailments. We talked about Fitzhugh Lee's replacement, Colonel Thomas Munford, on the last episode. After Rooney Lee went down with a saber wound, Colonel John R. Chambliss, commander of the 13th Virginia Cavalry Regiment, was tapped to replace him. Chambliss was born to a wealthy, slave-owning planter family and attended West Point. He briefly served as an officer in the U.S. Army in the 1850s before he resigned his commission and returned to his father's plantation in Virginia. The bulk of the division arrived in Salem on the 17th, and Stuart deployed his brigades in the surrounding area, concentrating near the small villages of Aldi and Middleburg. That day, he received valuable intelligence from Colonel John Singleton Mosby, who informed him that the Army of the Potomac was moving north on a parallel route with Lee, just much further to the east. No significant body of cavalry or infantry had crossed the Bull Run Mountains yet. 
Mosby is an interesting figure that plays a small role in the campaign, but he's worth delving into for a moment. Mosby was 29 at the time, and had grown up in central Virginia. While enrolled in college at the University of Virginia as a young man, he was arrested and imprisoned for shooting another man who had insulted him. Later, he studied law under the tutelage of the man who had actually prosecuted him in court, and after receiving a pardon from the governor, he became a lawyer. At the outset of the Civil War, he joined the cavalry and was elected to the rank of major. Mosby served well under Jeb Stuart, and the two developed a close friendship. In 1862, the Confederate government passed a law that allowed for the creation of partisan ranger units, which were basically irregular units that operated outside the bounds of the regular army. With the encouragement from Lee and Stuart, he created the 43rd Virginia Battalion, better known as Mosby's Rangers. Mosby's Rangers operated in northern Virginia, primarily Loudoun and Fauquier counties. From their base of operations, they harassed the Federals, took unsuspecting prisoners, stole supplies, and caused general havoc to the Union forces. The reputation of Mosby and his battalion grew to the point where the area around Middleburg was known as Mosby's Confederacy. Mosby himself was nicknamed the Grey Ghost. Now, his exploits were loved by the press and public, it certainly made for a good story, but just how impactful his actions were is debatable. He was certainly a nuisance, but that was probably the extent. Except for his ability to provide accurate intelligence, he never had a great effect on the outcome of the war in Virginia. That same day, unaware that the Confederates were anywhere near the Loudoun Valley, Hooker ordered Pleasanton's cavalry to head toward Aldi. The only significant thing about Aldi, Virginia, was that to the west of the village, the road split in two directions. The North Fork went toward Snickers Gap, and the South Fork to Ashby's Gap, both passes that led into the Shenandoah Valley. Gaining control of at least one of the gaps was an important objective for the Federal Cavalry, because they could more effectively gather intelligence on the enemy. Pleasanton ordered General David Gregg's division to ride to Aldi Gap, and Colonel Alfred Dufay's regiment to Thoroughfare Gap. If you'll recall in the last episode, Colonel Dufay commanded a division at Brandy Station, but immediately after the battle, he was demoted. He had certainly performed poorly on June 9th, but a large reason for the demotion came from Pleasanton's disdain for foreign-born officers within the army. He, not so subtly, hoped to remove as many from his corps as he could. Additionally, the Italian-born Colonel Luigi Palma de Cisnola was demoted and then arrested by his new brigade commander, General Judson Kilpatrick, for insubordination. <laughs> you know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. It's anti-Italian discrimination. The lead elements of Kilpatrick's brigade arrived outside Aldi Gap around 4 in the afternoon on June 17th. First in line was the 2nd New York Cavalry, which rushed forward when it spotted pickets of Colonel Thomas Rosser's 5th Virginia Cavalry. They were easily driven back by the New Yorkers, who continued to push through Aldi. The Federal advance was checked west of the village by several regiments of Virginia Cavalry under the command of Colonel Thomas Munford. Some of Rosser's men were ordered to dismount, form a skirmish line, and act as sharpshooters. One by one, Kilpatrick sent his regiments into action. These piecemeal attacks were initially repulsed by the rebel defenders. The fighting was intense, but unlike at Brandy Station, the action was mostly on a smaller scale, squadrons and regiments fighting against each other. First one side would charge, and then another would countercharge. At one point during the fighting, Colonel Nola, still under arrest, pleaded to General Kilpatrick to allow him to retake command of the 4th New York Regiment and lead it in a charge. Cisnola really understood Kilpatrick's soft spot for reckless frontal assaults, and he allegedly offered the Italian cavalrymen his saber and told him to, quote, bring it back bloody, unquote. 
Kilpatrick likely never saw the sword again, as the charge was easily broken by the firepower of the Virginians. Cisnola was wounded and captured in the battle. His time in the Gettysburg Campaign was now over. He'd spend the rest of the year at Libby Prison in Richmond. Munford and his regimental commanders had adeptly handled the situation well until late in the battle. When the day was coming to a close, the Union cavalry received reinforcements from Colonel John Gregg's brigade. With this infusion of fresh troopers, Kilpatrick organized another attack against the Confederates. This last charge broke through the rebel defenses, and Munford ordered his brigade to withdraw to the west. One officer that took part in the final assault was a young, Ohio-born West Point graduate, Lieutenant George Armstrong Custer. I don't want to spend too much time on Custer right now, as his role in the story is pretty small at this point, but his involvement at Aldi garnered him quite a bit of attention. Custer was a member of General Pleasanton's staff at the time, but eagerly volunteered to participate in the charge. He rode alongside the 1st Maine Cavalry Regiment, but a gunshot spooked his horse, which caused it to bolt out of his control. The same thing actually happened to him a week earlier at Brandy Station, but at Aldi, he managed to steer his runaway horse in the direction of the rebel lines. With his saber in hand, he wildly slashed the Virginia troopers, killing two. Because the horse had sprinted out ahead of the Mainers, it appeared that Custer led the charge himself. He later tried to downplay the incident, but several newspapers ran with the story that he was a hero of the battle. Hero. That could work for me. By this time, the sun had sunk below the Blue Ridge Mountains, and the battle had fizzled to an end. The results of the Battle of Aldi were inconclusive, a common theme when it came to cavalry battles. Gregg's division had driven the rebels out of Aldi and captured the crossroads west of town, but they had done so after taking serious casualties. Union losses of killed, wounded, and captured totaled more than 300 compared to around 115 Confederates. Kilpatrick had shown little skill in the deployment of his troopers, which resulted in those unnecessary casualties. The Confederates had lost Aldi, but Munford and his subordinates successfully delayed the advance of the Federal Cavalry, which gave Stuart time to organize the rest of his division to defend the mountain passes. Munford's brigade had performed poorly at Brandy Station, they were barely even in the fight, but at Aldi they showed that they were still one of the best cavalry brigades in Stuart's command. That wasn't the only action that occurred on June 17th. I mentioned earlier that Pleasanton had ordered a single regiment, the 1st Rhode Island Cavalry commanded by Colonel Alfred Dufay, to move to Middleburg at the same time that Gregg's division advanced toward Aldi. The Rhode Islanders crossed the Bull Run Mountains at Thoroughfare Gap and entered the Loudoun Valley, after which they turned toward Middleburg and drove away the rebel vedettes of Chambliss's brigade. Despite some warnings that they were riding into a trap, Dufay led the regiment to Middleburg, where General Jeb Stewart's headquarters was located. The Yankee troopers charged into town, which caught Stuart off guard. He and his staff had just sat down for lunch, and the Knight of the Golden Spurs was forced to hastily flee town. Once Middleburg was in federal hands, Dufay ordered his troopers to fortify the town until the rest of Gregg's division arrived. In the meantime, the incensed Stuart found General Beverly Robertson and ordered his brigade to attack Middleburg and retake the town. Dufay sent couriers to Kilpatrick to ask for reinforcements, but they were still heavily engaged at Aldi, so none were sent. At 7pm, Robertson's demi-brigade attacked the 1st Rhode Island, which had dismounted, barricaded the streets, and took up defensive positions wherever they could be found. Dufay only left a token force to defend Middleburg. 
He led the majority of the regiment south of town, where he organized two defensive lines. Robertson's brigade, at the time led by one of Stuart's staff officers, the Prussian-born Major Harros von Bork, charged into Middleburg, broke through the barricades, and easily drove out the Yankee pickets. Shortly after 7 o'clock, Middleburg was in rubble hands again. Robertson's troopers continued their advance south until they were ambushed by the rest of Dufay's regiment. Despite being outnumbered, the Rhode Islanders held their own against the inexperienced Tar Heels until darkness came. By the morning of June 18th, the Confederate troopers had almost completely surrounded the lone Yankee regiment. With limited options, surrender apparently was not considered, Dufay ordered his horse soldiers to break through the rebel line, but the situation turned into a chaotic rout. Of the roughly 280 men that reported for duty on June 17th, less than 60 managed to make it back to Union lines on June 18th. One of the men who managed to reach freedom was Colonel Dufay, whose reputation suffered quite a bit from the fiasco. It's easy to criticize Dufay for his poor leadership at both Brandy Station and Middleburg, but to be fair, he was put in a very difficult position. Considering Pleasanton's attitude toward his European-born officers, it seemed as if Dufay was intentionally set up to fail. Even if the Loudoun Valley had been unoccupied, it was foolish to send a single regiment out on a march by itself with no close support. That being said, Dufay failed to size up the situation his regiment faced before it was too late. His decision to hold Middleburg was in accordance with his orders, but the orders he'd been given were based on faulty intelligence. Once he'd become aware that he was outnumbered and isolated, he should have ordered his regiment to fall back so they could link up with the rest of the division. This was Dufay's last hurrah of the Gettysburg campaign, as he gave up his command shortly after the debacle at Middleburg. However, he stayed in the army and, strangely enough, was promoted to Brigadier General later in 1863. But in the following year, he led an operation intended to capture Colonel John Mosby, but it was the Grey Ghost that got the best of the French general. Dufay was captured by Mosby's Rangers on October 24, 1864, which effectively ended his Civil War service. Back on the night of June 17th, Colonel Mosby and his Rangers managed to capture two Union officers who were delivering official dispatches from General Hooker to General Pleasanton. This was a real coup, as it gave Mosby valuable information that detailed the positions and plans of the entire Army of the Potomac. On the morning of the 18th, Mosby reported his discovery to General Stuart. From this information, Stuart learned that most of Pleasanton's corps was concentrated in the Loudoun Valley, meaning that his spread-out division was now outnumbered. Some troopers of General Gregg's division skirmished with the Confederates at the outskirts of Middleburg early on the 18th, but Gregg, not knowing how large Stuart's command was, decided not to escalate the fight. Stuart, who was fully aware of the size of the Federal force, also declined to commit his horse soldiers to battle. Instead, he deployed his 3,200 troopers and eight artillery pieces on Mount Defiance, a strong defensive position outside of Middleburg. General Gregg came in force on June 19th. After a brief artillery duel, the brigades of his older cousin, Colonel John Gregg, and General Kilpatrick attacked Chambliss and Robertson's dismounted cavalrymen. Two Pennsylvania regiments of Gregg's brigade came at the Carolinians hard, carbines blazing. To the north, the attack of the 2nd New York and the 6th Ohio Cavalry drove back two of Chambliss's veteran regiments. The Yankee troopers temporarily captured a rebel artillery piece, but the 9th Virginia Cavalry charged back in and drove them off. The Federal left wing overwhelmed Robertson's demi-brigade, which broke and retreated. Stuart himself rode over to rally the fleeing troopers. The commander and his staff came under serious fire. The previously mentioned Prussian officer, Major Harros von Bork, was seriously wounded in the neck. 
Around that time, three regiments of U.S. Army regulars of General John Buford's division crossed Goose Creek, which seriously threatened the Confederate left flank. Stuart ordered his two brigades to fall back to the town of Upperville, about eight miles to the west. The Battle of Middleburg was another minor affair that ended in a draw. Most of the casualties came from the roughly 200 men captured on June 17th and 18th as a result of Dufay's blunderous expedition. The fighting on June 19th resulted in a combined total of about 150 men wounded or killed. The situation was still up in the air, though. Twice the Federal Cavalry attacked the rebels and suffered higher casualties, but had successfully driven them back. However, the Confederate officers made sound tactical choices which kept the Yankees in check and allowed them to fight another day. After weeks of no rain and intense heat, temperatures were well over 90 degrees during the marching and fighting of the past few days, a torrential downpour occurred on June 20th. Both sides took the time to shift their lines during the day. Hooker urged Pleasanton to find a way to break through to the Shenandoah Valley so they could get an accurate report of the Confederate infantry. But Stuart was determined to stop them from doing so. During this lull in the action, he was reinforced with General Wade Hampton's brigade of veteran troopers. Now he had five brigades at hand, but they were still spread throughout the Loudoun Valley and the approaches to the Blue Ridge. June 21st, 1863 was a Sunday. The pious Jeb Stuart hoped to give his troopers some rest on the Sabbath, but as he later wrote, quote, Not so. The enemy, whose guns about 8 a.m. showed that he would not observe it, unquote. Pleasanton intended to attack the Confederates at Upperville with his entire corps. In addition, he'd been granted a brigade of infantry from General Meade's 5th Corps, which was nearby, to assist their attack. After a morning cannonade, Pleasanton ordered Colonel Strong Vincent's infantry brigade to advance and clear the way for the cavalry. Vincent's brigade easily drove back the rebel pickets who fell back toward Upperville. Satisfied with the result so far, Pleasanton ordered his cavalry to follow up the infantry and seize the Goose Creek Bridge, which would allow them to march into the town. Once again, in the lead was General Judson Kilpatrick's brigade. Kilcavalry's troopers had suffered heavy casualties over the past two weeks, first at Brandy Station, then at Aldi, and lastly at Middleburg, where virtually the entire 1st Rhode Island Regiment was captured. The 6th Ohio and 2nd New York Regiments rushed forward, but they were thrown back by devastating canister fire from Captain James Hart's battery of artillery, which was posted on high ground between Upperville and Goose Creek. The Federals brought in their own battery of artillery, led by Lieutenant William Fuller. A fierce duel erupted between the opposing batteries, but the Federals soon gained the upper hand. A well-placed shell from a rifled gun struck one of Hart's caissons, those are the chests that carried the ammunition, and it caused it to burst. An explosion like that could easily kill or wound anyone standing nearby. One man who was close to the blast was General Hampton. Despite the concussion from the exploding caisson, he stood his ground, turned to an aide, and coolly said, quote, Well, I am afraid Hart has lost a gun this time. The mounting pressure of another federal attack, combined with their accurate artillery fire, forced Stuart to pull back his own guns and troopers further to the west. After 90 minutes of delaying the Yankee advance, the rebels retreated over the Goose Creek Bridge. One of Colonel Vincent's infantry regiments, the 16th Michigan, charged over the bridge and seized control after taking significant fire. Hart's battery withdrew, but had to leave behind the gun that had been disabled in the artillery duel, much to Stuart's chagrin. In his campaign report written later in the summer, Stuart even emphasized that it was, quote, the first piece of my horse artillery which has ever fallen into the enemy's hands, 
unquote. Stuart hoped to get his cavalry and horse artillery through Upperville as quickly as possible to avoid fighting in the streets, but Kilpatrick ordered his regiments to charge in and attack the retreating rebels before they could escape. Robertson's two North Carolina regiments were bringing up the rear and scattered when the New Yorkers and Buckeyes rode them down. In response, Hampton sent in most of his brigade in a counterattack, which stunned Kilpatrick's men. The Yankee horse soldiers fell back as fast as they charged in. Hart's battery of horse artillery had redeployed and opened fire on the retreating Union troopers. One shell exploded, killing the horse that General David Gregg was riding and wounded him in the process. While Kilpatrick's exhausted brigade regrouped east of Upperville, a new threat to the Confederates emerged. All morning, while Gregg's division attacked Hampton and Robertson's brigades along Goose Creek, General Buford's division had skirmished with the brigades of General Grumble Jones and Colonel Chambliss to the north. The two Confederate brigades had successfully slowed Buford's advance, so he detached three cavalry regiments of the U.S. regulars to attack Upperville in support of Gregg. This proved ineffective, as the regulars had exhausted themselves before they were able to attack the Confederates. Hampton turned his brigade to meet the threat, but kept a defensive posture as he was afraid it might be more Federal infantry. At this time, Colonel John Gregg's brigade had arrived on the field, which gave Kilpatrick much-needed reinforcements because the morning's fight had wiped out his brigade's energy. Gregg gave him several regiments with which to renew the attack on Robertson's brigade. The 1st Maine Regiment advanced, dismounted, and fought on foot against the North Carolinians, who at first put up a fierce resistance. Isolated against two Confederate regiments, some of the attacking Federals, including Kilpatrick himself, were forced to surrender. They were saved by the 4th Pennsylvania Cavalry, which charged in and broke the Rebel line. Initially, they were supposed to dismount and form a battle line, but according to their commander, Colonel William Doster, quote, there is no stopping 500 wild and infuriated men with drawn sabers, unquote. Their assault shattered Robertson's brigade, which quickly retreated, though many were taken captive by the Federals. By this time, it was sunset. Pleasanton decided not to pursue Stuart's division. The Battle of Upperville was yet another cavalry battle with no clear winner. In the words of the great Yogi Berra, it's like deja vu all over again. The Federals, with a numerical superiority, as well as infantry support, attacked the Confederate cavalry but failed to make significant headway until the day was basically over. Since the campaign had begun in the first week of June, the cavalry of both armies had been doing some serious marching and fighting, which was not exactly something they were used to. Troopers, both northern and southern, complained of the toll that nearly two weeks of nonstop action had taken on them. Private John H. Morgan of the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry wrote in a letter to his mother, quote, All the fighting since the Battle of Chancellorsville has been done by cavalry, and if this keeps up much longer, that branch will be almost extinct, unquote. Casualties were beginning to rack up. From the Battle of Brandy Station on June 9th to the Battle of Upperville on June 21st, Stewart's division had lost nearly a thousand men, killed, wounded, or missing. About half of those losses came from Brandy Station, the other half from the fighting in the Loudoun Valley. Pleasanton's Corps had lost 1,700 men in that same period of time. The fighting between June 17th and 21st had mostly been fruitless for the Federals until the very end of the day on the 21st. While the battle around Upperville was being fought, General John Buford's division skirmished with the brigades of Grumble Jones and Colonel John Chambliss to the north of the village. Like at Upperville, the battle did not produce significant results for either side. Jones's brigade successfully drove back the attacking Yankees, but after his own counterattack made no headway, he ordered his brigade to break contact and withdraw to Ashby's Gap in the Blue Ridge. There, the Confederates deployed a battery of artillery and dug defensive works to deter the Federals from attempting to break through. 
Buford, however, smartly ordered some of his troopers to ride to the tallest ridge east of the Gap to see if they could peer into the valley to the west. Through a thick haze and the fading daylight, the Yankee horsemen spotted the campfires that belonged to the division of Major General Lafayette McClaws. Though the Confederate cavalry had held the mountain passes, the information gleaned by Buford's scouts at least gave them a semblance of an idea of the Army of Northern Virginia's current position. They had confirmed that at least two Confederate corps were in the Shenandoah Valley. This was technically true on June 21st, but they assumed it was Ewell and Longstreet's corps in the valley. But by that time, the Rebel 2nd Corps had almost completely crossed the Potomac River. The division of General Robert Rhodes left Martinsburg on June 15th and arrived at the river late in the day. Three of Rhodes' brigades crossed the Potomac that night, a few hours after Jenkins' cavalry had done the same. Over the next few days, his division was camped on either side of the river around Williamsport, Maryland where they rested and waited for further orders from General Ewell. Lee's instructions were to spread out as much as possible, without becoming overextended, lest one of the columns become isolated and vulnerable to attack. Ewell ordered Rhodes to hold at Williamsport until Allegheny Johnson's division reached the Potomac, which they did on June 18th. The following day, Rhodes' entire division was on the north side of the river and on their way toward Hagerstown, Maryland, while Johnson's troops crossed the Potomac at Shepherdstown, after which they bivouacked at Sharpsburg, the site of the old Antietam battlefield. General Jubal Early's division left Winchester a few days after the battle there, also in the direction of Shepherdstown, where it would wait for General A.P. Hill's Third Corps to arrive. Unknown to the Federals, Hill's entire corps had crossed the Blue Ridge and was moving down the valley in the footsteps of the Second Corps. General James Longstreet's 1st Corps was guarding the gaps of the Blue Ridge on the western side. They would hold that line until Hill's foot soldiers had passed behind, after which they would make their own trek to Union territory. Jeb Stewart suggested to General Lee that his division of cavalry should be used as an independent force that would conduct a separate operation from the main body of infantry. While the Army of Northern Virginia crossed the Mason-Dixon line, the Rebel cavalry would ride around the Union Army of the Potomac and harass its flanks and rear. This would hamper the progress of Hooker's army and potentially shroud the Confederates' true objectives. Lee actually liked the idea, but he gave Stuart a couple of caveats. One was that he had to wait until the Confederate infantry had moved far enough north that it was no longer vulnerable to attack in the valley. Two brigades of Stuart's choosing had to be left behind to guard the mountain passes until it was clear that the Army of the Potomac had moved away from them. Also, in typical Robert E. Lee fashion, he gave conflicting orders to his cavalry commander. In the first directive, Stuart was told that he could ride around the Federal Army if it was on the move, but in the second set of orders sent in a letter on June 22nd, Lee said he could cross the Potomac east of the Blue Ridge if the Army of the Potomac was inactive, but he added that they should cross the river west of the Blue Ridge if it appeared Hooker was not going to move northward. Lee's wording was ridiculously confusing. The historian Edward Longacre suggested that the probable implication from Lee's second order was that he feared that the Union Army might not follow them north of the Potomac and instead attack Richmond. It's a plausible explanation, but since Lee didn't use that kind of explicit language, it's hard to draw a hard conclusion. Whatever route Stuart took to cross the Potomac, after they were north of the river, he was supposed to head towards the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania, where he would link up with Ewell's vanguard and serve as a screen for the infantry. The army commander gave Stuart a great deal of discretion in determining the actions of his cavalry for the next few days. On June 23rd, John Mosby rode to Stuart's headquarters and informed him of the position of the Union Army, which was stretched out over 30 miles from Leesburg, Virginia along the Potomac down to Thoroughfare Gap in the Blue Ridge Mountains. 
Stewart's division could easily slip through the Union lines without running into a significant force, as Hooker's army was stationary at that moment. Mosby also suggested a suitable place to cross the river. It was a place called Seneca Ford, which was about 20 miles upstream of Washington, D.C. From there, they had plenty of options of what they could do before they met up with Ewell in Pennsylvania. Terrorize civilians, capture supplies, wreck federal infrastructure, etc. Stuart was pleased with Mosby's information, and after he conferred with his senior subordinate officers, Generals Hampton and Fitzhugh Lee, who had just recently returned from his medical absence, he sent a courier to General Robert E. Lee with a message that asked for permission to initiate the operation. Lee approved of it, as long as Stuart did so within the parameters that he had set out a few days prior. As Lee prepared to move north with the main body of the army, he placed Stuart under the command of General Longstreet, and it appeared that he approved of Stuart's proposed operation as well. Meanwhile, the Army of the Potomac had mostly been sedentary since it had congregated around the Orange and Alexandria Railroad after it left the Rappahannock about a week earlier. Conflicting intelligence came to General Hooker daily, but by the third week of June, he had at least some understanding of what was happening. Most of the Army of Northern Virginia was in the Shenandoah Valley, and at least some of it was across the Potomac, perhaps even the Mason-Dixon line. All throughout the middle of June, Hooker argued with the White House and War Department. He was especially fed up with General Halleck, whose confidence he seemed to have completely lost by that point. To get around the General-in-Chief, he sent direct correspondence to President Lincoln, but the President refused to play ball with Hooker. His orders came from the President through Halleck, and there would be no interruption in the chain of command. But the controversy between Lincoln, Halleck, and Hooker was far from finished. That's where I'm going to leave off for today. Next episode will be the last before we finally get to the Battle of Gettysburg. The next phase of the campaign will focus on the Confederate occupation of Pennsylvania and the civilian response, the ongoing leadership crisis in the Army of the Potomac, and the beginning of Jeb Stuart's wild ride. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, history.